0: Turning to James chapter 5, we find ourselves back in James chapter 5, beginning at verse 7 this week. That's our section of scripture, verses 7 through 11. Follow as I read. I'm going to read the text and then pray for us one more time. James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can enter your presence by hearing your word. And we pray, God, that we would not close our minds right now or dance off in our minds to distractions, but Lord, we would sort of set our mind and attention on your truth and on you as the truth giver. Thank you that Jesus is the word of God. He was the messenger and the message himself. And God, we want to exalt Jesus as we hear the truth and as we listen, because this truth can transform our very lives This is not just a workshop in life skills. This is transformation in our lives and the lives of others. And, Lord, we want to be instruments in your hands to help change the world. So, God, let us now yield to your teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. As a college student... I was involved in an activity that left to my own skill set or lack thereof, I would have killed myself and that is the art and science and sport of rock climbing. Um, I did that a few times and found myself in the hands of a very capable rock climber named Thad. This, This guy sort of found me and found out that I'm the kind of guy who will just If somebody says, hey, let's go do something, I'll just jump and go do it. Some of you who do things in Alaska, who've invited me along, know that to be the case. Whether I have skill or am lacking, I'm willing, and that can be a dangerous combination, right? Well, I was in very capable hands and would go with this guy around Virginia and climb up rock faces with him, and he would show me what to do and would sort of put me in the gear and put me on belay, and off I would go. But what was amazing about him was his skill in watching him climb because this guy was a preeminent lead climber. I mean, he was the kind of guy who was spindly, sinewy, skeletal, so he just weighed about 130 pounds, and he was just muscle and sinew and bone. And this is the kind of guy who would use it to his advantage. He could jump onto a door frame and catch himself with his fingertips and start doing pull-ups. You ever know someone like that? This is the kind of guy who would look like he would stick to a brick wall where he would catch on to where the bricks would be jutting out and hang there. So I sort of said, when he would say, hey, let's climb this or that, I would sort of go with it. And he was, uh, he was a guy who would get me into some dangerous situations, whether it was a, going up a train trellis or rappelling and sort of learning that art um, on the job training style where he's like, look, you're saddled in, just jump. And so one time I jumped and didn't know where I was supposed to land, and he's calling down, the ledge is over there. And so, you know, sit back. And somehow I survived. But more than just for the fun of it, working with this guy and learning to climb and sort of putting my hand in the handholds that he would tell me to put my hands in, putting my feet where he told me to put my feet, it, it sort of solidified in my mind what discipleship really looks like. You have a lead climber, and you follow and do what he tells you to do. And you have a lead climber that actually, in this case he was spurring me on to do more than I ever would do on my own. Left to myself, I would have never done the dangerous things that he prompted me to do. And that's discipleship. The Apostle Paul put discipleship like this in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. He says, follow me or be imitators of me as I am of Christ. If you sort of take this verse and put it in a climbing motif, you've got Jesus at the top of the mountain, who's saying, come be like me. The perfect God-man, be like me. And then you've got the Apostle Paul as the lead climber, who's saying to Timothy, or to the church, follow me as I try to be like Christ. Forget about the sinful things that I do, and just do the things that are Christ-like. That's discipleship. Being a disciple of Christ is being a learner. And the beautiful part of discipleship that I want to bring up to our attention this morning is that we are disciple makers by example. Or we are being made a disciple of Christ through the example of someone else. In your mind, do you have in your sort of Christian history someone that stands out as a significant other? Someone who was a lead climber in your life? Someone who taught you to pray, someone who prayed in front of you, someone who exampled what it's like to struggle through something by faith, that's a lead climber. The Apostle Paul was by no means a perfect person. He's sort of, you know, uh, self-deprecating as he teaches the Word of God and wrote, you know, half of the New Testament. And he was a premier missionary, sacrificial servant, a martyr for Christ, but he was also what he called of himself chief of sinners. That's at the end of his ministry. That's at the end of his life. He's saying, I'm chief. I'm foremost of sinners. Romans 7, he battled the flesh in his own heart, always wanting to do right, but catching himself up short. He's very transparent about that. There's a scene in the book of Acts where he's being persecuted. A king is sort of putting him on trial, and Paul is standing for truth, and the king has the high priest come up and smite him on the face or slap him across the face and belt him. And at that point, Paul, not knowing who this person was that just hit him, rebukes the guy and actually sarcastically says, look, who are you, you whited wall? You say, well, that's kind of uh, a geeky reply, right? No, but whited wall is calling a high priest a hypocrite. You hypocrite. And immediately Paul was caught up short with the Old Testament law that says you're not supposed to do that. And Paul in that passage said, you know, I I shouldn't have gone there. I shouldn't have done that by law. And so Paul was a sinner. But oftentimes it's the sinner that we're looking to and looking through to be like Christ that helps us the most. Because we realize that people aren't perfect, but as they struggle up the mountain to be like Christ, we say, you know, I can do that. I can put my hand there. I can put my foot there. I can pray like that. I can read the word of God. I can can give like that. I can serve. If that person can do it and that person's bringing me to higher ground, I can go there. And don't sell yourself short. You too, whether you know it or not, may be lead climbing right now and other people could be watching you, following you as you follow Christ, even... Well, in this text, what we have is we have some pictures of what it looks like to be a disciple-maker. Pictures. You've got three versions of what it means to be a disciple that James is describing. And I'm sort of borrowing these pictures from Paul's words to Timothy. Paul in 2 Timothy 2 says that a Christian disciple is an athlete, is a farmer and is a soldier for Christ. You're like an athlete, you're like a farmer, and you're like a soldier. Here in James chapter 5, one of those categories is explicit, and that is being a farmer. Being a farmer. And that's the first picture that we're going to look at. Three ways Christians are called to imitate Christ. Three ways Christians are called to look like Jesus. First of all, if you're going to look like Jesus, you've got to be like a farmer. You gotta be like a farmer. Look at verse 7. Be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. What does it mean to have farmer like patience? That's an interesting question. The word patience is, in the original, macro thumos. What it means is being long-tempered or long-fused. Thumos is the word anger. and It's the idea that you've got a long time before anger is going to come out. Patience in one form or fashion, is mentioned. This term is mentioned four times in this context. This is on James' mind. He is calling the church to be patient as they've been under some pretty severe persecution and abuse. This is a church, as we looked at in verses 1 through 6, that has been persecuted or prosecuted underneath some abusive, wealthy people. People who've gained their wealth by abusing the poor, and the poor were the prominent people in the church at this time. The church men and women and families were scattered out of their homes, they were under the diaspora time period, where they were having to leave their wealth behind, and by and large be day laborers, agriculturalists, and people who were exploited by the rich. The rich, wealthy, either Greek, Roman, or Jewish people would come in and they would buy up the poor people's land and then put the poor people into indentured servanthood and then sometimes would not pay them and put them in a state of desperation. And that's what James was rebuking the wealthy people for doing in verses one through six. The wealthy people weren't even present in the church probably, but James is rebuking them saying, listen, they're going to have justice served to them when the Lord returns. That is going to happen one day. This injustice will be made right when Jesus comes back. And so for the edification of the poor church, it's important for you to know Jesus will right this wrong. But in the meantime, verse 7 launches this theme of patience. Where James is saying, look, you've got to be patient and wait for the Lord to do the work. He's the avenger and you're not. James is not working the church up in some sort of crusader lather where where they're supposed to be the army of God and fight back in physical violence. James is saying, look, no, you leave that work to God and it's your job to be patient, to be long-fused, to be the kind of person that's not sitting there loading your bullets in the chamber saying, listen, if that person says one more thing, then I'm going to blow. If that child does one more, if that child throws one more cookie on the floor, it's over or it's on, right? If that coworker looks at me the wrong way one more time, I'm going to give that person a piece of my mind and it's owed to them. James is saying, look, no, you fly in the face of that culture of thought. You're long fused now. In terms of my personality, I am not a very patient person. I'm not naturally patient. I'm actually kind of naturally impatient. And I know that's the flesh we're talking about, but in terms of my hardwiring, I'm a person who might be known as a getter-dunner. And if something's not getting done, then I'm just sitting back impatiently wondering why. I love action, I like results. I'm not sort of that easygoing, even-keeled person that's just satisfied to just sit where we are. I'm kind of a go-getter, and that is a temptation ground and a landmine-filled spiritual life in terms of the need to be patient. What I'm glad for is the fact that Galatians 5, what I read earlier, verse 22, says that the fruit of the Holy Spirit, one of those categories, is patience is this being long-fused. It's the same word. And when I am yielded to the Holy Spirit, when you are relying on God for results and for His timing on things and for Him to intervene and create justice where we need it, when we're doing that, we're seeing patience worked out in our lives. And we realize when we're impatient, we can repent of that and then entrust our hearts to God to give us patience. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for that. He says, be patient. And be patient like a farmer. What does it mean to have farmer-like patience? You ever know a farmer? Perhaps there are some farmers here present with us today. I've never farmed before. I've had the privilege of knowing some people who farm or who are part of a farming culture. If you know me... If I'm trying to even grow grass, I'm at a deficit and probably will kill it. Um, I've slayed quite a few green blades in my um, lifetime. Also, um, I can't grow anything. I can't. And, and basically, any animal that we've ever had, you know, is, its life is in Judy's hands. Now, she can grow everything. I can't grow anything, so that's good. Our children even, you know, they'd all be raised on Fruit Loops and Apple Jacks and Pop Tarts if it wasn't for someone who knows how to grow people and nurture. I'm not that person. However, farmers have to be. Farmers have to be. The mentality of a farmer is fascinating, right? They have to be methodical, mechanical, deliberate. They have to they have to have foresight. They have to understand the weather, they have to understand You know, the art and science of farming, and above all, they have to be patient. They have to work hard and sow the seed, but then wait on the Lord to bring the increase and yield. That's farming. Now modern farmers have it better than these ancient ones did, right? Modern farmers by and large have equipment where you are sheltered as you farm, as you till the ground, the machinery's doing the work for you. You've got your iTunes going on, right? And you're you're all set up in your farming equipment to till the land. But at the end of the day, whether a farmer is a believer or an unbeliever, they are waiting for a supernatural intervention. No matter how well you sow the earth, you're waiting for supernatural intervention to bring about the increase in the yield of a crop. No matter how much pesticide, no matter how much um, setting the table that you do as a farmer, God has to work to bring about a result. Now, in ancient times, farming was a lot harder. I've tried to dig out stumps out of the ground before. I've tried to dig through roots in the earth. I've tried to remove things like big boulders. That's hard, backbreaking work. That is very, very difficult. And basically, farmers in antiquity were working with ox power, and they were working with their back, and they were working with archaic tools to get it done. And guess what? They were getting it done for survival. If you don't work, you're not going to eat. It's not going to happen. And more than that, as a farmer, you were relying upon the Lord to bring the rains so that there would be a harvest, so that your family could eat. That's what James is talking about here as far as a mindset for the Christian. You're a hard worker, and you're very patient to wait on the Lord for what he's going to do. And it's both. It's both. You know, modern farmers. I, I was watching, this is where these illustrations come from. I was watching, you know, some PBS channel or some sort of children's channel uh, last night with Owen or one of the twins or something. And it was a modern farmer who had his turkey farm. And so he's got this sort of, um, you know, shed or or barn full of turkey chicks, and they're hatched, and they're showing the different barrels and feeding units that feed the the turkeys. You guys with me? Did you see this last night? It was hot TV last night. Anyway, so you got your your turkeys, and they're eating, and and they're chicks, and, and, you know, my kids' eyes are wide open at this point. And the farmer's explaining, hey, I'm sitting under one of the 115 degree um, heat lamps right now. And that's the same temperature of this chick that that would have under its mother's wing as it grows. Well, really what I was beginning to to understand here is that this was not like a beautiful story about the turkey. These were execution chambers, right, where the turkeys are growing up because the next scene is they're full and fat turkeys. And the next idea is, look, these turkeys, the next place that they're going to go is off to market. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Wow, you know, what a bummer. But, you know, farmers, they have they have amenities, don't they? But these farmers back then were those who were in out and out desperation for what the Lord would give them. I did a study on the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Feast of Tabernacles was one of three feasts in the Um, Jewish calendar that all of Israel would come to and they would come in the fall season to do one thing primarily and that was to pray for rain. That's what they would do. I mean all the whole group would come and if you've ever been in the terrain of Israel you know that when it's wet it's lush it's Eden and when it's dry it's not. How do I know that? I've never been to the Holy Land but I've been to Southern California and it's the same longitude. (laughs) That's about as close as I've been to the Holy Land. You drive around Southern California and everything is dry and tumbleweeds and waiting to burn up, right? Unless it's irrigated or it's just rained. Then all of a sudden, it's the Garden of Eden. It's beautiful. You can grow anything there with water. Otherwise, it's just dry. It's the same thing in Palestine. And so what they would do is they'd gather together for this Feast of Tabernacles. It was steeped in the imagery and symbolism of the children of Israel wandering through the wilderness. They would they would burn giant menorah candles to remember the fire by night and the Lord's deliverance of the people. And they would also celebrate how the Lord provided for Israel by giving them water through the rock. Remember, Moses would, was instructed to hit the rock and speak to the rock, and it would spout forth water. Well, the priest during this ceremony at the Feast of Tabernacles would take a golden pitcher and scoop up water from the pool of Siloam and dump it around an altar and call the whole congregation to pray for rain. What's interesting, if you were to look at John chapter 7, which is Picking up on the Feast of uh, Tabernacles, verse 37, right at that moment where the nation is praying for rain, on day seven of the Feast of Tabernacles, right at the end of this festal period, Jesus stands up, probably high up so he can be heard, and he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In other words... Jesus picked up on that desperate moment and pointed all eyes on him saying, listen, you're looking for physical water to drink and you can have me who can satisfy you with rivers of living water. And in that context, Jesus says, he's talking about the Holy Spirit's work in the life of a believer. Well, back to James 5, verse 7. Why why is someone to have farmer-like patience? Because the Lord is going to, to come the Lord's going to come are you in an impossible situation right now you're probably working through something where you have to have farmer like patience you've got to in other words work really hard maybe it's a family issue or a life struggle or a financial difficulty you're hurting in some way, something in your mind is irresolvable, where you work really hard to try to fix it or help it, but ultimately you've got to step back like a farmer and say, I've sown the seed, I've done the work, I've tilled the ground, and now I have to back off and let the Lord bring the rain. Jesus has to be rivers of living water to me, and I'm banking on Jesus' return to ultimately bring justice to my situation. Ultimate reconciliation won't happen until Jesus comes. And that's what James is saying. You've got to have a farmer-like mentality to be a disciple of Christ. Verse 8, he says, You also be patient, establish your hearts establish your hearts. He moves now from the farmer patience to what I'm going to call athletes' patience, the patient athlete. This is verses 8 and 9. Now, that's not explicit in this text, but the idea of establish your hearts is athletic-like language. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 2 and following, Paul says that a disciple is an athlete who competes and always competes according to the rules. Paul also says of himself that he's a Christian that's like an athlete running a race where he's, he's buffeted his body. He's trained himself so hard so that in the end he'll cross the finish line and pull the tape. He'll win the prize. Philippians 3.14, he says of himself that he presses toward the goal for the prize. He's stretching to win. James 1.12, this is a more immediate context, describes the Christian life as a marathon race where you are blessed once you've passed the test, you've finished the trial. And after you've done that, you'll receive the crown of life. Paul looked at his whole Christian life in summary in 2 Timothy 4, writing his last will and testament, saying, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. And laid up for me is a crown in heaven. Ephesians chapter 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, But principality it's a wrestling match, it's a race, it's a boxing match. It's something we're persevering in. And James 5 picks up on this idea where he says, establish your hearts. You know what this literally means? It means to set your jaw in tunnel vision on a goal, on a goal. You want to be patient in your life? You have to make a deliberate decision to do so before life gets hard or harder. Life might already be hard, but the call is to establish your heart. The Williams English Bible translation puts this phrase this way. It says, fill your heart up with iron. Establish your heart. The King James Version of this phrase, when it was, uh, when it was put on Jesus, you have Jesus in Luke chapter, um, Luke chapter 9 where he's going to Israel and going to Jerusalem. It says that Jesus set his face like flint, Luke 9, 51. The English Standard Version says, when Jesus drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. You know what that means? That means that Jesus had his own version of tunnel vision. There are a lot of people that still needed to be healed. There were a lot of people who were sick. There were a lot of people who were vying for his attention. There were people who were flattering Jesus for all of the miracles that he was performing. There were people who were trying to stone Jesus because he was preaching and saying he's the only way to heaven and he is God. And you know what Jesus said? He said, no, I'm setting my face to the cross and I've got tunnel vision. And as a Christian, you need to have athletic like athlete-like tunnel vision. you got to be able to say, you know what? No matter what's going on in my life, I'm going to shepherd my own heart before God. I'm going to make room for God in my day. I'm going to seek Him in the Word of God. And for the sake of my little church at home, I'm going to give the Word of God to my kids and pray with them. Uh, There's a lot of things that vie for our time. There's a lot of things that grab our attention away that are temptations, but we are to establish our hearts for the sake of God and His glory, right? Amen? we got to be like Jesus in that way. You know, an athlete that's successful can compartmentalize away the crowds, right? The jeers, the mocks, the taunts. You can compartmentalize away your, your defense, that guy who's trying to get in your head and trying to distract you. It's the same thing in the Christian life. No matter where you are in your age, in the spectrum of your life, old or young, you are to have a farmer mentality where you work hard and leave the results up to God and an athlete's mentality where you have a zone-like focus on the Lord and what He wants for you. And if you don't have that mindset, you're going backwards. It says establish your heart I mean, Jesus, he was even being distracted by his family. Remember, his family came and tried to intercept him while he was on mission? They're saying, oh, Jesus is crazy. He's crazy. We're going to take him away from that. And Jesus even denied his family so that he would be on mission. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. It's the same concept here, a few, ver- few pages over to the left. Hebrews 12, verses 12 through 13 is where the author is talking about the chastening of the Lord. Do you remember those, those verses and ideas, how God disciplines the ones that he loves? And there's, there's affirmation that even though you're being disciplined by the Lord, that means that you're a child of God. Well, in verse 10, look at this, in verse 10... The writer says, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, the writer was speaking about parents and now he's talking about God. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So the writer is saying, have a different mindset about that. And then he says to do something for yourself. Look at verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. What's the writer talking about? You know what he's saying? He's saying it's okay for you to be weak and recognize this discipline that's going on in your life. It's okay for you to have to figure that out. And when hard things are happening to you, you can recognize that God is working through that hard trial. And perhaps he's training you. Perhaps he's correcting you. But what he's saying also is that it's not okay for you to stay weak. But you're also supposed to be strong. And the Holy Spirit gives you the enablement to do what's instructed here in verse 12. Look at that again. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And then in verse 13, he's literally saying, look, if your bones are broken or are out of joint, put those back right. You need to put a cast on and keep going. You need to put a brace on like an athlete and keep playing. Now, you might be weakened But you're also strong at the same time in your heart. It's not okay just to sit in your sadness and feel sorry for yourself and close down. At a certain point, when you're knocked off the horse, you've got to get back up on the horse and ride. That's the promise, though, that this passage gives. Like James, you are enabled or empowered by the Holy Spirit to press on, to keep going, to never quit. You might get knocked down in the race, but you're supposed to get back up and finish it out for God. What is your situation? What is it that that's keeping you down? Where is it that you have to go, you know what, I've got to be a farmer and I have to wait for justice to be served, but at the same time I've got to be an athlete and get a laser-like focus and keep going. I was listening on the radio And it just gave me sort of a snapshot into what some of you might be facing in Anchorage or some of your friends. According to Forbes magazine, I looked it up online as well, we are either the fourth or the fifth most dangerous cities that's populated 200,000 and above. And that's, that's in comparison to Detroit in our country and other places, Lubbock, Texas, and some of these others were listed. And I thought, well, what, what is it about Anchorage that, that's so hard? I mean, at, at one level, I like it to be hard because the gospel is more necessary here, right? People need to hear the truth more. And so it's good to be on a mission post here in Anchorage. But what is it that people are struggling with is what went through my head. And, you know, things like sexual abuse and rape and domestic violence were listed as sort of top categories that are happening here in Anchorage, murders. And I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what's beneath the surface. I mean, Anchorage is a beautiful place and it's a beautiful town and a beautiful place to be, but beneath the surface, people are struggling. And I want to give you the encouragement that you can stand up by the power of the Holy Spirit and persevere as an athlete. And you don't have to do it alone. If you're struggling... Seek help here at the church. Get help. Don't do it by yourself. But at the same time, recognize that justice is promised for whatever you've been through when the Lord returns. You may not see justice served on this end of heaven, but it will be served one day, ultimately. And that's what James keeps saying over and over again. Why would you establish your heart? Why would you be like a farmer? Why would you trust the Lord? Because you know that Jesus is going to come back and right all the wrongs. You know that. You say, but that's such a long way away. How can that help me through this week? Well, the reality is it's not a long way away. It's in the blink of an eye that Jesus will return. And in the meantime, we have the confidence that he's in control, that he will not put more on us than he puts in us to bear up under trials, and he'll see us through, and then ultimately he will rescue us and destroy his enemies. I've been reading a biography. I sort of put myself under a pretty hardcore assignment where it's a biography that's a classic one by Arnold Dallimore, He wrote it on George Whitfield, and George Whitfield is the sort of culture-changing evangelist from the 1700s, and he was doing that with John and Charles Wesley. They were Oxford students together. John, Charles and George, and George got in as a servitor, sort of as a guy who would shine John and Charles' boots in terms of the class system there. He was a hard worker, sort of a blue-collar student in Oxford that put himself through, and because he was so in touch with God, John and Charles invited him to, his, to their holy club. None of them were believers at that point, but George became a believer after he read a, a book, Got saved, and John and Charles then followed suit, became Christians, and then they all became evangelist preachers and then missionaries and As the story picks picks up at the point i 'm going to quote um, George Whitfield, John and Charles had already come across the pond to Georgia, and they were ministering to Indians and other people at that time, colonists, and they were sort of being rebuffed and This is what George Whitfield said as he was crossing into ...Atlanta, on board the Whitaker, a ship, Whitfield said this. It says, Whitfield "...Apparently thinking of the strange troubles the Wesleys had encountered in Georgia, prayed, quote, "...God, give me a deep humility, a well-guided zeal, a burning love, and a single eye, and then let men or devils do their worst." That's farmer and athlete and soldier-like talk. Get my single focus on the Lord and then say, look, whatever happens, happens. I'm going for it. Do you have that kind of courage in your heart? It takes that kind of courage to speak up for Christ, even around people that know you best. Sometimes that's the worst situation, right? That's the hardest. But you've got to have iron in your heart to be able to say, I love Jesus more. Fill in the blank. Jesus is the only way for heaven. It's all kinds of scenarios where we have to have this kind of athlete-like, enduring focus. Well, verse 8, it says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, why is that there? Why is that there? Let me just sort of briefly um, explain this. Grumbling here is growling. It's, it's literally the idea that James is saying, look, you're being oppressed by the wealthy, abusive culture and society, and justice is going to be served by Jesus. In the meantime, you're not supposed to fight them, and you're not supposed to fight each other. When is the greatest temptation to infight? It's when we are being oppressed from the outside and told not to fight them back. James says, look, I'm not spooling you up to fight back. And at the same time, by the way, don't fight each other. You ever get aggravated in the home behind shut doors when life is hard on the outside? It's easy to turn on your own and shoot them on the inside. James is saying, don't do that. Why? Because there's a judge that's coming. Now, as Christians, we're not terrified of this judge. We know that the judge will ultimately bring great white throne justice and judgment on unbelievers. For believers, there's the 1 Corinthians 3, Bema Seat Judgment, where we will be judged according to our deeds. What we've done that is hay, wood, and stubble will be burned away, and what we've done that's gold, silver, and precious stones will be preserved. But what's burned away for us will cause us to suffer loss. That's what 1 Corinthians 3 says. And we do fret over the sadness of our own lives and what we're not doing. And we need to remember, look, let's not sin in this way. Let's not grumble against each other. Why? Because the judge is standing at the door. As a child, do you remember when daddy was at the door? That's the picture here. Do you remember that? You shaped up pretty quickly. If you had a dad who was, who was on the ball and, you know, he's right at the door. It's like you're doing something. And, uh, Dad's there. That's the idea. What's the next step in God's program? It's that Christ is going to return in a moment. There isn't anything left to happen before Jesus returns. Do you know that? In God's program, Christ's return is imminent. Now, I believe 2, Corinthians, um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 that the Antichrist will become evident during the time of Jesus' return. But guess what? Antichrist could be here already. There's been plenty of wars and rumors of wars. There's also been all kinds of kinds of catastrophe and cataclysmic events that have happened all around us, right? Floods, tornadoes, tidal waves, hurricanes, earthquakes, disasters. Guess what? Even during this sermon, Jesus could return. And we say even so come Lord Jesus. But we also say that very soberly because we know the state of our own heart and soul. In Philippians and 1 Peter, those authors give the same kind of warning, saying, look, Jesus is returning, and so what sort of person ought you to be when he returns? That's the mindset here. We need to be people who are are playing the part of farmer, athlete, and soldier. Look at this in verse 10. It says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. You know what a prophet is? A prophet is my hero. If there's one sort of person or category in the Bible that I want to be like, it's prophet. And not just because I like to preach, but I like the prophet mentality. They were like the special forces of Christians. They were the ones who, they were completely sold out. And they were the ones in Hebrews chapter 12 that the author said, they're they're of whom the world is not worthy. They're the people who were sawn in two. They were the people who watched miraculous interventions take place because they were going for it for God. Jeremiah, as a prophet is, is said to have been put in prison, put in a dungeon. He was, he was lowered into a cistern by ropes by the king. Lowered into a cistern or a place that would keep water that was empty, but it was filled with mud. It was like Jeremiah was lowered into quicksand. We're basically, as Christians, commissioned into the army and called to be proactive and patient at the same time. It's like this. It's like the war is going on. We're in the foxhole. We've got our weaponry. We're standing our ground. We're not going to back off. We're praying together. But we're called not to fight God's battle for him. As we're persecuted, we're not supposed to strike back. We're like Peter with Jesus in the garden where Jesus is saying, listen, it's part of my program for me to go to the cross. And when Peter pulled his sword out and cut Malchus's ear off, that was not the right procedure. That was not the right call. Jesus said, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. We're supposed to wait on God as the avenger. So we're in the foxhole. We're holding our ground. We're standing firm. We've got laser-like focus. And we're waiting for air support, which is Jesus' return, for him to come up and drop the bombs and seal the deal. That's our position. It's a position of, of nonviolence. It's a nonviolent position. I sort of researched uh, Martin Luther King's principles of nonviolence. You might want to read those sometime. They're they're not all biblically derived, but at least the first one is very Bible-based and seems to jive well with James. Principle number one. This is what all the rally members, all the thousands of rally members that followed Martin Luther King to walk and march. It's what they had to read and imbibe. Principle one. Nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. It is active, nonviolent resistance to evil. Did you catch that? Active, nonviolent resistance to evil. That's what we're called to be. Active. Patience is, it's not passive. That's my point. It's active. You're, we're supposed to put on patience, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to wake up in the morning and say, okay, Lord, I am, I am naturally in the flesh and I, I have a demon on my head that I have to throw off and I have to trust you to be patient. You see? I want to be macrothumos. I want to have a wide berth of patience in my life. It's important. It's how we won't groan against people. We're called to be soldiers for Christ. Jesus is the ultimate picture of these things. We're looking at lead climbers here in James and the Apostle Paul to be farmers, to be athletes, and to be soldiers. But Jesus, he was called the prophet, the priest, and the king. He's our ultimate example, and we need to live the Christian life like him. Next time, we're going to look at Job's patience what his patience look like, but let's look at a few application points. Number one, patience is a fruit of the Spirit. You know what? Listen, it's not something you can drum up by willpower. I've said it already, but I just want to reiterate that to you. As a farmer, it's got to be God that does this in your life. He's got to bring the yield in your life. And guess what? Because it is a fruit of the Spirit, it is God's will for you to be patient. It's not enough for you to say, well, I'm Irish, so I'm angry. That's not going to work for me, right? It doesn't work. The fruit of the Spirit is patience. Number two, I recommend, and I've sort of given this recommendation throughout the sermon, but I recommend that it is your regular prayer request that you invite someone into your life. Lord, give me someone who can be a lead climber, who I can watch suffer ...and endure through trials and put on patience... ...because there's no better way to learn patience... ...than reading of it in this book... ...and watching it lived out in someone's life. That's how you learn patience. And you should also pray... ...Lord, let me identify someone who's watching me climb right now... ...the Christian life... ...and let me pour patience into their life... ...or life. You say, I'm not worthy, I can't do that. Well, God has called us to make disciples... So we are doing it. It's just how well we're doing it. So we need to make that part of our prayer life. Number three, challenge yourself to regularly consider the Lord's return. It's a daily decision to remember Jesus could come back today. And it's most important for us to say, I want him to come back today. If you have that mindset, you will be transforming people around you. Unbelievers and believers. It will transform your own life as well. Number four, when you're being wronged, this is practical patience. What you have to do is you have to leave judgment with God. Don't return evil for evil. Let the Lord be your avenger. What that does is this. It gives you your life back. You ever watch somebody's soul shrink up where they're just begrudging an offense? You know, the old, like, feud between families. Well, that person did that in 1973, and I'm not going to forgive him. You can forgive people and not be reconciled yet and leave it to the justice of the cross and Jesus' return to take care of it. And that's the important mindset. We need to be farmers, athletes, and soldiers for Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for time and your word. We thank you for your truth. It reigns, God, supreme. And, Lord, coming to your scripture is always a spiritual gut check. It's our opportunity to see where we're falling short, but not to end there and, and leave in hopeless despair. It's our opportunity then to see that Christ is being formed in us. And, Lord, I pray that we would be useful to other people who need a lead climber, and that, Lord, you would send people into our lives to show us how to live the Christian life and be like Christ. Thank you for this time. Thank you for filling our heads with the truth. We thank you that, Jesus, that you stand as the judge behind the fortress doors. You're waiting to burst through. And, God, as you are ruler and judge, you are, you are in heaven, but there's only a thin veil between heaven and earth where you're going to burst through into our lives you'll bring judgment upon the earth and you will rescue us into heaven and we thank you for that reality because we know that we are yours lord let us be patient waiting farmer minded christians for your glory in jesus name we pray amen i want to mention just a couple of uh, service opportunities um, to you sometimes you'll hear people in the church